Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and our favorite media. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused strokes from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Good. <laughs> well, today, friends, we are going to be answering some of your questions that you have sent to us through various means. Uh, if you have questions for this podcast or any of our podcasts, remember, we do have three of them now, Lore Watch, Blizzard Watch, and Tavern Watch, uh, you can go ahead and uh, send those in to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. If you don't want to send us an email, you can go ahead and hit us up on Discord. We have several channels set aside. We have one for our Patreon supporters as a way of saying thank you for supporting us. And it's our Patreon Q and Podcast Questions channel. If you can't support us on Patreon, you can also support us by uh, sending your questions into our Q and Podcast Questions channel and also sharing our content with your friends. Uh, you know, send them our way. Let them know that we make cool content. At least I think we make cool content. I think Matt thinks we make cool content. Verily. <laughs> our content is like a golden city waiting patiently for you. All right. Well, we're going to start with a question from our friend Razorbug, who sometimes I will randomly call Razorberg uh, and apparently gets a pretty big kick out of that. I'm sorry. For whatever reason, Razor, whenever I read your name, I think a fairly odd, fairly odd appearance with Dinkleberg, and it just automatically comes into my head that it's Razorberg. Little little fun side for you. All right. Hi to them that done war watch lore. Can I ask an inside out lore question? Like we know why dragons are important in WoW and in D&D, literally in the name, and in some Asian cultures and in Tolkien and about every book Richard Neck has written and Western medieval manuscripts, etc., etc. But what's the lore behind dragons in our world? Why are we obsessed with them? Why do we base so much of our fantasy, myths, etc. on them? Dinosaurs I get. We have the bones and evidence of monstrous lizards who once roamed the earth. But dragons seem like pro wrestling. We know dragons were never literal, but they excite every genre of stories they are found in. Can we turn the lore question backward and ask why our rational world loves dragons so much and how East and West went to different dragons independently? Matt, do you have opinions on this? Because I feel like there's a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of our, our dragon mythology is tied up with, uh, well, fossils, right? And churning uh, up into dinosaurs. That is a theory, but it is not is by far not the only theory that that addresses this. For first off, 
a lot of fossils were never really recognized as fossils. We've only really known dinosaurs existed for a couple hundred years. Um, a lot of fossils, we, they existed. We, you know, we know, for instance, the Gobi is, is fossil rich. There's fossils all over Asia, but they weren't necessarily viewed as fossils. That certainly could be one of the sources of the dragon idea. Another comes from anthropology. There's an, an anthropological study a few years back looking at the fact that humans who have never seen or don't live in a place where there are snakes or big cats or, you know, any kind of hunting bird that could possibly be a danger to them are still afraid of those things. It's like hardwired into our brain's limbic response. So they looked at it and said, okay, I, th one of the, the guy wrote the study whose name I'm not remembering. Sorry. I, I could go look it up, but I don't want to. It's, it's I'm, I'm talking. Uh, basically his point was that these things cause an immediate instinctive terror response in the people that it works on. And that, that implies that at one point there was a biological reason for it. And monkeys have it. Our relatives, monkeys, have this response. It seems like for a long time, primates would be under extreme danger from, again, the trifecta of snakes, cats. Uh, David E. And, Jones, by the way. Thank you. Uh, the book is snakes, called an, cats, instinct, an Instinct for Dragons, which is a, yeah. a fascinating read, by the way. Yeah. Um, it, the, the trifecta is snakes, cats, and birds. Now, if you put a snake, a cat, and a bird together, you basically get a dragon. That is what they kind of are. Um, most most medieval ones for certain, but look at like the the, the ancient Mesopotamian Sirush or the Mastruga. Those things are basically combinations of reptiles and cats and snakes. Uh, we look at the, 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 um, the Chimera, which has the head of a dragon, the head of a goat, and the, the head of a lion, and the tail is a serpent that bites people. Um, all these different kinds of monsters and mythological things might in some way be influenced by the, the overtime evolutionary history of us with them. Like the, for a long time, our primate ancestors were basically just food for those things. There's also the fact that a lot of people have witnessed big reptiles throughout, you know, earth's history, uh, including like, for instance, um, Australian people like living in people living in Australia about 5,000 years ago would have seen Megalania. Mm -hmm. Megalania was a is a Komodo dragon on steroids. Well, that's is, uh, that's the megafauna, uh, the, uh -huh. the the megafauna phenomenon, right? Which is just gargantuanly sized creatures. Yeah, that we would have seen, as opposed to dinosaurs, where we never would have seen them. Going back a mere ten thousand years, and you can see stuff like uh, the 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 terror birds. Those things were alive and running around North and South America. Uh, Fosorakos is definitely something that would scare the heck out of humans that ran into it. Um, you could see, for instance, the, uh, the Indricotheres, they were around, um, there's like the ground sloths, all that stuff. And a lot of them left bones behind. And when the bones are found, here's one example. If you if you find an elephant skull without an elephant anywhere near it, you've never seen it, an elephant or yeah, heard one. It does one. not look like an elephant. Yeah. It's, it's got a gigantic nasal cavity that looks like an eye socket to most people who look at it. So they think, oh, wow, is this some kind of cyclops? Yeah. Now, obviously, we know it wasn't, but you know, but also just 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 as one example, uh, a lot of people think that the the myth, the reason that the myths in Asia are different than the myths in in Western Europe is that Asia has a, a lot of big river reptiles. Um, for example, various forms of crocodile and alligator are yeah. all over Asia, and those animals, whilst they are dangerous and powerful, don't really hunt humans. There's no real 
you should be cautious of them. You should be wary of them, but you don't really have to be afraid of them. As long as you don't go where you're not supposed to go or do what you're not supposed to do, the crocodile is more than content to never interact with you. So that's another thing some anthropologists think. Uh, yeah, there's, there is the uh, there is the thing about the Nile crocodile as well as one of them, right? Like talking yeah. about the what well, was the sub-Saharan African Nile crocodiles, which can grow up to 18 feet in length. Uh, mm-hmm. and- oh, they get bigger net. Uh, they can, and unlike most of the other crocodiles, they they can do what um, they call it a high walk, which mm-hmm. is like where if you ever seen the videos of like where you just see a, a crocodile hauling rear and it's got it's it's up on like extended its legs oh, and moving way, real it, fast. Yeah, it turns out that that's not rare to the to the Nile crocodile. Almost they can almost all do it. They just choose not to then, right? Yeah. Well, like the American alligator very rarely doesn't have a reason to do the high walk, but it can do it because there's film of it doing it. The uh, the caiman in South America. Yeah, they've been finding ones all over the place. But I mean, crocodiles are just another example. We, but I mean, it's, easy, it's easy to mistake that. Like I can see a human looking at that and going like this giant scaly thing with a huge maw that's charging at uh, charging at something, whether it's me or, or another creature that it's hunting. Yeah, I can see them going, that's yeah, a dragon. Well, I mean, and that's the other thing is like, you know, like I mentioned with the Sirush, uh, there's a lot of art of things that we have no idea what that animal is supposed to be. Um, this comes right down. You mentioned Egypt set. Mm-hmm. No one knows what the, the Typhonian beast is that Set's supposed to have the head of. No one knows what that animal is. We don't have it around anymore. And we, we keep going like, okay, we keep tracking Egypt back further and further. Like, the Egyptian culture, they found carvings and cenotaphs from like 9,000 BC now that are, that are clearly Egyptian. They're related to the culture that, that we call Egypt that was called Kems, Kemsen at the time. Uh, the whole sp- sp- Scorpion King thing was not actually as fake as we thought it was. Mm-hmm. There really, there really was a Scorpion King. It's just that we know almost nothing about him. He probably didn't look like the rock. He almost certainly didn't get turned into an actual Scorpion. Um, but I mean, you know, I wasn't there. But regardless, we, if you go back far enough, there's a lot of a lot of humans, fully human people, the humans that we would recognize entirely as us, goes back million. Like it, 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 we found tools recently carved 1.5 million years ago, a whole stone tool, like a whole stone toolkit inside of a workshop. They're calling it 1.5 million years ago. Those people could tell other people how to make tools. You know, so they had some kind of culture they were transmitting, and that goes back to the very name dragon. I was this just going to some- bring that up with the word with its because uh, yeah. it, it comes from uh, Dracanta, right? It comes if you go back far enough. It comes from Drek, which is a Proto-Indo-European word that means to see, which then and- evolved into to watch, which is why it's also yeah. so prevalent as the name dragon in a lot of the folklore and history. Because despite being very wildly different like forms of dragon represented in, in uh, medieval European and Asian culture, they do have some things in common when they're generally depicted as guardians of something, whether it's yeah. a hoard of treasure or a font of knowledge or incredible power or guardians of an ancient sealed away tomb, things like that. These are, they always sort of have that like almost like guard dog esque or like a guard esque uh, quality to them, regardless of region. Which and I think a is lot fascinating. Of think, a lot of people think that this is because when humans were first getting to the point where we were actually studying snakes instead of just being terrified of them, one of the things they noticed was that most snakes do not appear to ever open or close their eyes. Mm-hmm. Like from a human perspective, that thing is not blinking. I mean, they have a nictitating membrane, but it's not like the first people to notice them could see that. 
Um, as a result, they thought that this was a quality of snakes that they just watched all the time. Like they just were constantly aware of what was going on. And so that word started off, you know, it started off as just a word to I see. And then it was basically calling them the watchers, the seers, but also you'll notice there's a tradition of like big reptiles or draconic things involved in actual oracles, like the Pythia that, that basically Greece turned around the, uh, the, the temple of, of Apollo at Delphi, the Pythia was not originally a priestess of, of Apollo, even in Apollo's own myths, his, his, he goes to the cave at Delphi and and kills the Python, the gigantic serpent that is there and takes over. And that's why she's the Pythia. Uh, and, but clearly there's an older tradition and we know it was there of this, of a serpent shrine in the area that again, for the, for the Greeks in particular, I'm using the Greeks as an example here, but you can get it from the Anatolians. You can get it from the Hittites. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go back to like India. There's, there's the, the, the battle of, Oh, I can never remember his name. I was going to say, because uh, I mean, it's even prevalent in Proto-Iranian and Proto-Hindu uh, Proto yeah. culture as well, right? Like Veritra. Yeah, the, the Veritra, who is the gigantic serpent dragon monster. Or if you go back to like, go all the way back, Tiamat isn't named Tiamat just because they thought it sounded cool. Tiamat was this enormous serpentine monster mm -hmm. in, in uh, Sumerian mythology, Sumerian and Akkadian. Uh, she came from the waters. She was uh, basically like a sea serpent type thing. Uh, very similar to a lot of these other dragons that we have in myth, because dragons didn't reach the form that you see in the medieval period until the medieval period. And like, even then they were, they weren't as big and grandiose. Like look at a lot of the manuscripts from the medieval period that have them. They are winged, uh, winged lizard creatures, but they're vaguely man on horse sized. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's, there's one story in particular that I always like find amusing is that there was this enormous serpent living in a well and it it got so big because a kid threw his his he found like a serpent in the woods and he was playing with it for a while but then he threw it in a well on his way out of town I guess and then years later he comes comes back as a knight and he's like I I gotta fix this this thing's eating sheep I think it's called the Lambeth worm yep yeah it's the Lambeth worm and because of like the this whole like the things be, they tried to kill it several times and they failed they they've cut it and it's grown back or whatever. Who knows what, what that comes from? It could come from the fact that it's very hard to know when not you've killed all the snakes in an area. I, I don't know. But he goes to this local wise guy. He's like, okay, how do I, not wise guy, wise man. You know what I'm talking about. Not, hey, yo, Vinny, how do I do this? Oh, hey, I got you for you. Um, Joe and I are both are Italian. We get away with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, t he goes to the, to the wise man and says, oh, how do I defeat it? How do I get it out of here? And he's like, you need to wear armor that's got big spikes and, and blades on it. Just mm -hmm. cover yourself in that stuff because this thing likes to grapple around you and crush you, but it won't be able to do that because you'll cut it into pieces. And so he gets the armor and goes forth and fights it. And absolutely, this is what happens. And he ends up dragging it to the river and killing it. Um, but that's the kind of story. Like if you look at the really interesting about all this is that it goes back so long that it is actually kind of impossible to blame it all on fossils. Now yeah. you can absolutely say that fossils had a role in this. And I totally think that some, in some cases they did, especially in China and other Asian countries, because but they had a, so many fossils. There's a, there's another, there's another aspect to it though, that we didn't even talk about yet. And I want to bring up real quick too. Okay. And go for it. We as modern people forget how much traveling still was done in the ancient, ancient world. 
right? So like there were systems in place and, and people who would travel between different regions could make their fortune by going and getting extravagant, extravagant goods uh, from all across Eurasia or uh, traveling down into uh, Africa and places like that, places that were, were connected with land bridges or uh, didn't require massive, massive boats uh, to get to alternate ways. And it would be hard and arduous. But when you start doing that, we are a very uh, oral tradition type of people. When you start traveling, you learn the languages, uh, you learn the stories because that's what happens, right? Um 13th Warrior is a movie that actually I think does this really, really well, uh, where, where story and interpretation are sort of like how things happen in the land. Um, and as you go to different areas and you sit at a tavern or you sit at, uh, you know, the inn or whatever the case is, and you start to communicate with the people in the halfway that you do, right? Like if you don't speak the same language, but you can understand some of it. And so you trade the few words you do and you start to piece together a story of another region that you've never been to. And they tell you about, you know, maybe it's just about a plague of snakes that, that hardly terrorizes the area, but the way that they describe it, it gets interpreted as larger or different or breathing fire or whatever the case is. And so there's, or, you know, also let's one other thing to throw in here while we're talking about this. You know about Herodotus, right? I do. Yes. Herodotus would often, when he was writing his histories, he would tell you people, things, stories people had told him about an area. And he'd yes, always say, exactly. I, I don't know squat about this place. I have no idea. But they tell me there's one-armed, one-legged cannibal people over there. Um, I, I just took them at their word. So be careful. That's the kind of thing that happened all the time. But it didn't always like, come with their caveat or the writer of, I don't know well, this personally. because Look at Sir, yeah, look at may, Sir John Mandeville. Yeah. Who, who wrote about the Aramis Pazians. And you're like, what? And there's like people who grow out of wool that crumbs out of trees. And it's like, what? Like every other thing John Mandeville told people was ridiculous. But people believed it because none of them got to go there. And, and, and a lot of it wasn't necessarily him lying. It was just him being told, oh, yeah, that's in that weird place where this thing happens. And it's the telephone game, basically. Yeah, but even and even then, too, there's the, the other thing that I wanted to be is, yes, there's a game of telephone to it. But there's also an, a level of theatricality to mercantilism back then that lended to the merchant that could tell the best story about the goods that they were selling you was more likely to sell you that good versus the guy in three stalls down that has roughly the same product, but, you know, just tells you about how his kid made it right. Like it's, there was almost like an air of danger to it. And it sort of encouraged you. Like if you're traveling and you happen to see, I don't know, a giant monitor lizard, right. And this thing's, those things can get big and they generally don't care about humans, but they, they will go near you. And even back then I'm sure they would too, because humans have some of the best grub to eat sometimes. Um, you know, you see this thing that maybe you haven't seen before. And then you talk about this harrowing tale of, I traveled three days and four nights and battled a giant dragon that wanted to keep me from bringing this precious silken textiles to you, but I fought it off and here it is. And you can see where it has the singe marks at the end, uh, maybe because it just got a little too close to the campfire that night, but the air of theatricality carried over and it helped sort of morph those stories as well. And we do have records of that. We have records of, of merchants who basically wrote the playbook on how to do that. Like you make the most fantastic story that you can out of what really happened to you. So there's the tinge of the real to it. 
and it just evolves. So there's all of these different factors combining, right? And that's where sort of the evolution of dragons comes from. And, and it's also worth pointing out, it's pretty easy for us to look back and go, but, you know, we know they weren't real. But, A, people have run into some really weird crap. Oh, yeah. That did, like, didn't make any sense. Imagine being a European the first time you see an elephant. Yeah. The Romans were like, what the F is that? The Greeks were too. The Greeks went invading India and you know, the, the native armies, you know, the, 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 the Hindi peoples came forth with their war elephants. And, and Alexander was like, what the shit? What is that? Well, uh, why, does why, it is have- it, why does it have giant armor? Why does it have giant bladed tusks or giant bladed horns at the front of it? Why is it scooping my people up? Like, why can't our why weapons does, pierce it? Have, why does it have an arm coming out of its face? Yeah. What is that? Why does it have an arm coming out of its face? That's not even an arm. It's like a tentacle. It's like an octopus face. What is that? You know. <laughs> now imagine he describes that. Like here's an actual person, Cetesius. You guys ever? You were. If you haven't heard of Cetesius, go look him up sometime. Uh, Cetesius was once one of the most famous travelers uh, and physicians in Greek history because Cetesius went from Greece and for a while was a physician in both uh, Persia and then after that India. Like he went kept going east and he wrote to his you know his his friends and relatives and and so forth uh which stuff which ended up becoming kind of like a published as a book uh like Cetesius's black book and in it he described things that exist that are real animals that we know exist but he described them so differently than anything anyone had ever heard of or seen that entire myths were born out of this guy's writings uh, if you've heard of a manticore, again, it's like supposedly a lion with the head of a face of a man and a tail with spikes on it. This was his attempt to explain a tiger to people. Yeah. Because they hadn't seen tigers. They'd seen lions, but they'd never seen a tiger. This is before it morphed into the winged version that we know of. The original manticore was just a lion with a human's face. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing. This process is not, it's not something that we, we don't we don't do this on purpose. This is a process of how humans communicate with each other, which we can then do on purpose. Mm -hmm. Like as Joe's pointing out, you can take that ability and just go wild with it and deliberately do so. But it's an inherent part of our exchange of information with people. If there's a language barrier, if there's a cultural barrier, like two different cultures can see an animal very differently. Well, not only that too, but going, going to the cultural aspect of it, there's a lot of things that we know that were were taught to people that couldn't read or or weren't as uh, I'm going to say educated because it wasn't like you could just go to a public school and like learn to read. Uh, you know, some countries did have that, but not everywhere did. And there's a certain air of teaching people to do the right thing to stay alive by making threats to keep them from doing that. And we see this in religious text. We see this in storytelling. We see this in the oral tradition of stories that pass down from small villages. If the deep dark wood that happens to be next to your town is dangerous because there's creatures that are venomous and pitfalls and things like that. I mean, think of nowadays you tell somebody not to do something. They're probably going to go do it anyway. Especially like children, when you tell them you shouldn't do this, this is a terrible idea. A lot of times kids are like, well, I'm just going to jump off the the porch and into the pane glass window anyway, because why not? Back then, you made stories of horrendous creatures or or gigantic evils, and it helped 
to secure and scare people from doing that thing that you knew would kill them. It was almost an included way of learned survival by scaring the hell out of the people around you by making up the biggest, nastiest thing you could. And there's an element to that as well, too. And then to top it all off, sorry, go ahead. Uh, there's also the inverse of this. Uh, I think GK, GK Chesterton probably said it best. And I'm going to use his actual quote, not the one you remember from Coraline. Uh, Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Mm-hmm. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. Yes. And it's, which is the inverse of what Joe's talking. First, you put the fear into them. And then when they get to a certain point, you tell okay, them they can overcome it. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yes, you should be afraid of this. This is scary. That's why we didn't want you doing it when you were younger. But now, unfortunately, we have to go out and hunt because we need food. So you're going to have to do it, but you can do it. And it's, again, you know, there's a lot to why why dragons are so important to us. There's all the stuff we've been talking about. And I know Joe probably has more stuff to mention. uh, But I will say this. Ultimately, the dragon... The, the word dragon, uh, we mentioned it comes from the root to, to see, but look at what it's been, it's come to mean. Like mm-hmm. if you look at one of the most famous Dracos in existence was Draco of Athens. Uh, Draco basically taught Athens how to be civilized. And he did so through measures that we to this day call draconic. If yep. you say his measures were draconic, it means something specific. It means that they were harsh and brutal and, you know, should only be engaged in when absolutely necessary. And that's what dragons kind of, they serve both as the boogeymen and the, the instigation of a lot of our stories. Um, Heracles goes around killing them. Uh, You know, Beowulf dies to one at the end, you know, after he's done his heroic feats and, and lived his life as a King, it's a dragon that kills him because only a dragon is worthy to kill him. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of different stuff that dragons do in our cultures. One thing that's so often pointed out that I find really fascinating is whilst there certainly is evidence of things like fossils that might have been contributing factors, one of the places that has the strongest dragon mythos, the strongest amount of dragon stories is, is the Norse lands, Uh, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, uh, Norway, whether it's the sea serpents or anything like that, they're all sort of, they're all sort of, yeah, they have linworms, they have sea serpents, they have actual dragons like Fafnir. Yep. And yet there's no fossils in those areas. Well, not no, but very, very few fossils. It's not a fossil rich area. It's not like, it's not like China or the Gobi or anything like that. But also they traveled, right? One, they traveled Two, they preserved. If you look at Norse mythology, it actually has a lot in common with other, with other mythologies throughout the world. That's why people first started noticing there was kind of what they call an Indo-European language group and an Indo-European mythos. It's not, it's that the the peoples that that lived in these various parts of the world they interacted with each other. They're not necessarily all related. Like it's not that you know for people who were Celts and people who were you know Germanics and people who were from India are all related just by descent. No, not necessarily. They might not in fact be be related at all. But they interacted with each other. They learned each other's mm-hmm. languages and spoke each other's languages to each other. And through that process. The, a common mythical group seems to have been disseminated throughout the region. If you look at going all the way from like Ireland and in England and Scotland, all the way to India itself, uh, the word ta- the Thames, the River Thames in in uh, 
England is got a sister in in India called the Tamasis, and it's yep. a, the same root. Um, the Danube, which is you know the Danube flows through Europe, not it's not on the islands at all. But the the people in Ireland, the 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 myth of in of the Irish people, one of the one of the colonizing groups is called the children of the goddess Danu, uh, the Tuatha de Danann, and the Danu that they're talking about is the river. It's the river god that the, the Danube is the Danuvius is that god, and so with dragons, the fact that dragons are spread out across this vast cultural thing probably comes down to a lot of factors. It probably comes down to the fact that we have an instinctive caution around them around serpents and thus when we see a serpent it could be poisonous who knows so boom you know it's it's very similar that way but there's also the thing joe was talking about with like you know people telling the stories of their travels and you know trying to make them sound as impressive as possible maybe he's not lying but if a crocodile came out of the, the water and charged their tent I would be scared. I would, I would definitely, I would definitely bleep my pants if, if a crocodile charged at me, and I would heroically run away and tell the story about how I heroically ran away from the dragon. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, oh, but look at the fact. Like, look at an animal we know is real we, that that humans see all the time. Alligators. Yeah. We see them all the time. Like people in Florida, they literally, and yeah, you're used to them, and yeah, but at the same time, that thing gets up and starts coming at you, and your brain is like, whoa. Now imagine that you're trying to tell somebody who speaks a related but very different language as you're traveling from, say, the middle of Europe out to Samarkand on a road that is used for trade for like 3,000 years. And yeah, you can see how stories get changed and told. I I, I really liked your mention of the 13th Warrior, by the way, because that was a really interesting book. It's got its problems, but it's based on a real guy. Yes. Like a real... uh, Arabian explorer who went up into Russia and then over into uh, Norway and Sweden and dealt with a lot of Vikings. It's a and, really, but it's a really yeah. good example of this particular principle and what we're talking about here too, right? Like this, the, the book itself is a fan, a fantastic read. If you don't want to read the book, um, I can highly recommend the movie. Uh, it, it was an ent- a movie. I mean, it's got its problems, but yeah, it's actually fun it, to watch. Yeah. It's far from perfect. And it does have some problematic stuff in it, which, you know, that's your warning, but it handles this phenomena well. When it, they talk about the fire serpent, they talk about the the people in the dark and, and the things that are going on there and how the stories carry and everything else. And it is a fantastic example of this exact thing, right? So, like, it, I keep going back to it whenever somebody, whenever we talk about the roots of mythology. And also, uh, if you have some time, start reading about or look into uh, proto whatever culture, whether it's proto Iranian, proto, uh, uh, Indian, uh, proto European, uh, proto Germanic, like they're, they're all very fascinating. And it goes back to what Matt was talking about too, about like, they're all similar ish. They all interacted with each other. And because of that, there are common roots to the mythologies that they, they tell, right? Yeah. Not just the mythologies, but the languages and vice versa. Yep. Um, one example is, the names of the key, the chief sky God in a lot of religions that, that existed back then, it, it doesn't always look the same. Like you look at Zeus and Jupiter and you're like, that's that name. Those names aren't even close, but Jupiter comes from Dius Pater, uh, which is de- derives from Dayaus Pater, which comes from Sanskrit. And before Sanskrit, there were other words that were very similar. And the thing is the name Zeus comes from Deus, the root of the Deus, Dayaus which in, in, in Latin, Deus means God, 
Zeus is just that d, like z and d are very similar sounds. So when you look at it, you instead of going Deus, it's very easy to go Zeus. Yeah. Especially as you you drift, these these different populations are isolated from each other. They had the initial cultural you know contact and exchange, and now they're not talking anymore because they're very far away from each other. We know the people who ended up becoming what we call Greece migrated into the region repeatedly. So Deus Pater, Jupiter, Jupiter, mm-hmm. uh, Deus, Zeus, Zeus. And we even know there are myths that basically point out or make it fairly clear that at one point, Poseidon, Zeus, and Hades were basically the same guy. Yeah, it just from evolution and discussing it over th- multiple cultures, split it into three. Yeah, and the reason for it is one of the things that they they figured out is that the the name Hades comes from Ayades, which means hidden. And Poseidon derives from a a inscription we have in Linear B that's Potawidon or Potaidon, and it the, basically Zeus was just his job. Yeah, he was God. Yeah, Deus um, Zeus and and. Uh, Ayades, the hidden, just that's what he does secretly that you don't know about. And then Potawidon is the shaker of the earth, the bringer of floods and earthquakes. And that became separated out into these three roles. One of them is the guy up in the sky. One of them is the one who makes earthquakes and, and floods. And one of them is the under the un- keeper of the underground. Now think about that in terms of what we're talking about dragons here. And what you get is you've got Joe's guardians that he talked about, the watchers, the things that see. And, and look at you know, look at one Greek myth in particular, the apples of Eden. Yeah, I mean, sorry, no, it's not the apples. It's apples of Hesperides. My my bad. It's that Eden is the the Norse version of the exact same story. She also has a dragon watching it, her apples. This story exists in multiple cultures. It exists in Proto-Iranian culture, yeah. uh, Proto Proto uh, Germanic culture. Like they they this story exists across cultures. The the, the entire. Uh, the entire origin of the Veritra story is basically the gods want something that he keeps, you know, he, that he that he is watching. So they try to kill him and take it. That's like the whole thing. It's very similar to the bull of of, of heaven story from from Sanskrit. Originally, the animal might have not have been a bull that Gilgamesh was was killing. It might have been a sirush. And sirushes, if you ever see them pictures on gates, they look like dragon. They look like dragon horses. Yeah. And all of this is just basically coming down to saying. There's a utility amongst human beings to have stories that are terrifying so that you know what not to do, but also inspiring so you know what you can do. And dragons are perfect for them because they, they combine real animals, uh, our inherent responses to some of those animals, the very real fact that a big, a big reptile thing coming out of the water is pretty freaking scary. And most dragons are initially water beings. If you go back and look at the myths... They weren't all flying around breathing fire on you. The initial ones are almost always coming out of the water. And the modern day interpretations of them morphing into humanoid form and transforming into those giant those giant creatures of of danger, death, and fire or acid or whatever the case is, doesn't that sound like you should be wary of those you don't know? Doesn't that sound and, like it's a parable telling you to watch for that which you cannot see? And there's at least two myths I can think of off the top of my head of a human being turning into a dragon because of greed or covetousness. Mm-hmm. One of them being Fafnir, uh, and the other being the one Sigurd killed, whose name is escaping me again. But that happens. Or you've got like Typhon, who is the rival of the gods in Greek mythology. Now, Typhon's not specifically a dragon, but he is he's a gigantic winged beast with multiple 
limbs and this you know, multiple heads who breathes breathes fire and almost takes out the Greek gods. So he's close enough. And one of his children is even more like a dragon than he is. Uh, so yeah, oh, man. You know, I realized we didn't even get to talk about the Serbian dragons and how they're wildly different than the traditional. Oh, no, no, we didn't. No. For for those of you at home, the they had the the, the head of like a, a a ram and can turn invisible. Uh, like the dragons are such a wild thing in human mythology that it is it is the term. I think it was. I forgot when it really was coined, but it, it's a modern term when we started talking about dragon kin. Even mm-hmm. like games like World of Warcraft, we we see dragonkin and draconoids, and we we associate them instantaneously with a certain type of thing. But dragonkin is sort of like this all-encompassing term for everything that is dragon-like in human mythology, and they all again. I feel like we're repeating, but it it's a fascinating thing. And I, this is this is why I took proto mythology courses in in college and and did a whole ton of reading and continue to do reading on this. I think it is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, uh, one thing to point out too: there's another element to it that we barely even touched on. A lot of times, the dragon thing is used as an explanation for why a specific human being seems to be in touch with or can contact the world of outside, you know, the, what you'd call the, the, the other the world, Shen, the spirit the, world. Yeah. The Shenogs, the Yaos, the Amoshikus, the, uh, I'm, I'm, I apologize folks. If I'm mispronouncing uh, this, and the, if you want to go to into, into Italy, the, the uh, hallway, yeah, the, the Lac Lanquan, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, since Joe had mentioned, mentioned the Slavic ones, the, that what got me thinking about it because there's this me. Mm hmm. And uh, the Zmi are basically the same thing as what he's talking about with the Serbian dragons. They're like these giant draconic things. <laughs> Russian folktales, by the way, you want to get some messed up stuff, go read some Russian or it is like, brutal. Slavic you know, folktales. But one of the things that you get out of that is they actually called their uh, uh, their their spiritual intercessors, for when you want to call them like, you know, shaman or whatever word you want to call. They were called a word that means dragon man. Like really called dragon man. Uh, I think it's... I, I, I got to go look it up, but that's the thing. Like you were said to have the blood of the dragon. That's, that's something that humans have been using, especially in Asia, but not just in Asia. It's, it's all over the place. It, it is one of those things that gets worked. You can go to, if you go to like South and Central America, I'm sorry. You cannot look at Quetzalcoatl and not think dragon. Yeah, it is like I mean, the, the serpent. Yeah. The, the wind serpents, the wind serpents of, of going to South America, they are dragons in every aspect of it like even in their the what they characterize what they uh what they like again being that guardianship we could we could go into the whole pantheon of 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 them and there's a lot of them but it all stems to the same thing it's just their version of it because that's their description of it that's their i don't want to say flavor because it's really it's just that's their cultural normalization of the concept yeah. of dragon yeah if you go back the fact that is that the human beings who, who are alive today go back way longer than the cultures that we have. And we all basically came out of the same place. We all originally start genetically speaking from a rift Valley in Africa. And there are multiple waves of immigration and people who left at different times, went to different parts of the world, but and in, interbred with other humans who are from like related human species, like the Neanderthals, Dennis Evans and others. But in the end of it, it's like, it's like talking about the, 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 the English someone puts on a, on a ball when they're shooting pool. You and somebody else are maybe shooting the same, you know, 
you're hitting the 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 the, the cue ball to, to knock it into other balls, but the spin is is generated by you in that moment. And that's the way it is with culture. Cultural transmission isn't an all or nothing phenomenon. You can't control what other people pick up from it. It's a constant evolution, right? Like yeah, it, it does not stop. Did people who walked over the Bering Land Bridge already have stories of dragons? Did they get to South America and like, oh, you know, there's look at if you look at North American snakes, they're not the same as European or Asian or African snakes. Uh but they're similar, and but a lot of them are big water animals. Uh, look at you know you you don't run into a say a, a western indigo like a, that's like a seven and a half eight foot long snake. Well, I mean we could also we could, we could talk about we haven't talked about like in in South America like the Orinoco crocodile. Yeah, exactly. Or for that matter, the flat out American crocodile, mm-hmm. which is just in North America. It's in the United States right now. Just people mm-hmm. don't know about it because there's less of them than alligators, but they're there. Uh, like, what is the other one? The it, combine that with uh, uh, murder. They're they're terror birds. Yeah, I can't remember Forcerocos. the actual name from. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Forcerocos and its relatives. Uh, they totally would have seen those things. Uh, there's just all of this stuff gets churned together, and because humans, even when when dealing with with information that is brand new to a situation, we contextualize it inside of ourselves based on our previous experiences, and then when we communicate it, we communicate it. Uh, oftentimes it's impossible to get what you're trying to say across. Even if two, if you're speaking to somebody who's exactly as fluent in the same exact language as you are, there can be trouble doing this. Now imagine you're doing it with somebody who, you know, he's grown up his entire life in the Sinai. You're from England and you're attempting to tell this tin merchant about the, the big crocodiles that you saw on the Nile on your way in. And, you know, next thing you know, he th- he's telling you, he told me he fought a six-headed dragon. Yeah. You were trying to say there were six big crocodiles, but you didn't get it across properly. All of this is pa- part of it. I think that the thing that's great about dragons is that they're like a perfect storm of human fabulism. Yeah. They're, they're what we dream up when we are trying to understand what somebody else just said to us. So there, there's a lot to this. And we could go on and on about it. I don't. How much show do we have left? Oh we got God, about 15 minutes. We've, we've spent 40 minutes talking about this and I'm happy to do so because it's, cause it's not just dragons, right? And we can oh, branch totally. off a little bit. It's every mythological creature that has ever existed, including, and I'm going to bring this up because I think it is absolutely fascinating. Modern day cryptids, right? Like mm-hmm. modern day cryptids, the Jersey devil, Sasquatch, um, the, the Chupacabra, all of them have, their their origins based off of this and like in the case of like the, the chupacabra it's you know they they call it the goat sucker they call it the because it it was how they described like mutilated livestock right uh what did this and ideally or, or i shouldn't say ideally but in reality it was probably a giant predatory cat or something that did it um or wild dogs but when you're telling the story about you chased off a giant dog or, or like a mangy mutt that happened to get a good hold of your 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 goat versus this hairless monstrosity that was v- like latching on to the side of your your livestock like a lamprey you know there's there's a little bit of a uh, variance there especially if it's in the middle of the night and you don't have your glasses on and you can't really see what you're looking at uh, uh there but there we do the same thing now we do the same thing with ghost stories we do the same thing with uh basically modern day storytelling and in another you know 100 years or so those myths those things that we now take for granted as like you know modern day funny stories will be 
looked at as our generation's myths, right? Like, does that make sense? Do you get what I'm trying to say, Matt? Oh, yeah. It's basically the phenomenon behind Mothman and all that. I think we could talk, sit here and talk about cryptids for another hour or so. We probably could. Uh, but like, for any, here's another example. This one kind of roots in, into like real things. We know there are giant squids. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Krakens. Yeah. But we don't, the Kraken stories, like people are like, oh yeah, it's just based on giant squids. We don't know that they were. We just know that cra- that giant squids exist, and they could they could account for some kraken story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people used to think that whales were like big fish, and and in a way they are in the same way that you're a fish, which is a thing. Technically speaking, there are fish out there that are more closely related to us than they are to other fish. Mm-hmm. And this is like if you see a a lobe finned fish, um, like a mud skipper or anything that like. You know, those kind of those kind of fish are more closely related to you than they are to say a ray fin fish. And you can't have a description of fish um cladistically. You can't say, okay, here's the group of all fish without cutting out us and all the things like all the reptiles, amphibians, mammals, all of them. If you cut them out, technically they're more closely related to that guy over there who you're trying to keep in your diagram than any of the other stuff in the diagram is. So if you exclude them from fish, you've kind of now that now fish has no meaning. It doesn't mean anything. There's no commonality between what fish means and what it doesn't because you've, you've just created this giant divot. And that's something humans want things to make sense to them. Yeah. We need to rationalize. We have an inherent need uh, in our brains to put order to what happens around us. So telling people, you know, you're more closely related to a fish than that fish is to other fish. They're like, what? That doesn't make sense. Like that thing is in the water. It's, you know, when, when they found coelacanths were, were not extinct. One of the first things they tried to do was basically come up with an origin for coelacanths that made them part of like, you know, this fish or ancestor. And it doesn't work. Coelacanths are lobe fin fishes. They're not closely related to ray fin fishes or cartilaginous fishes like sharks. Their closest living relatives are like, uh, I think it's like a kind of catfishy type thing. I can't remember it, but it's its closest living relative is another kind of fish that likes to come up on land and, and move around. And after that, all their close relatives are everything that lives on land. All the tetrapods, all the amphibians, all the reptiles, all the mammals and birds and, and archosaurs and the dinosaurs and all of it. Those were their, their descendants and relatives. And that's just... We, I feel like humans instinctively know, even though we, we come up with all these reasons why we're not... We know we're animals. We know there's not a lot different between us and, you know, anybody who's ever had a dog sees how fast it is that you just start treating the dog like it's another person at the house. You know, unless you really try, you will just instinctively treat your dog like it's a person. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our fairy tales and myths and stories are an attempt to rationalize the world, to make the world make sense. And let's look at, we can look at modern day superheroes for that. Yeah. Modern day and superheroes it, are, are starting, to, and I'm not talking about comic books, but I'm talking about the stories of extreme, like human events. Whether it is the story of the mother, uh, or you know, pulling a, or lifting a car off of a child, or uh, people running through fire, or things like that. 
they tend to evolve those stories because we need to rationalize how a regular human could potentially have the strength uh, or the mechanics of their body capable of lifting a heavy vehicle or heavy object or, or running such great lengths or running through what we know is dangerous because fire is danger. We're taught that at a very early age. Uh, and, you know, if you touch the stove, you you knew that at an early age that fire is bad. Uh, it's useful, but, you know, be careful. You know, and a person seemingly runs through uh, untouched or unscathed, uh, things like that, or people that survive like massive trauma. And because our brains in us as people, while there is sort of some explanations and they're still sussing that out as to what the limitation of those scientific explanations are, whether it's adrenaline or, or just the mechanics of a human body, those stories sort of evolve into you know, what became the basis of superheroes and think about that throughout history, right? Stories of huge heroic feats of strength or or prowess gave way to Captain America and Spider-Man and the stories we tell now in comic books, because at one point in time, they weren't stories in comic books. And one last thing before I go, uh, before we move on maybe, or just stop, I don't know. At this point, we got like nine minutes. There is an animal that existed uh, right up, until about 8,000 years ago. This animal is named Sivatherium. It's named after Shiva, Siva. Um, and the name is basically the, the, the words Siva, you know, for Shiva, and Therium, which is Latin for the Greek word Therion, which means animal, beast. Beast, yeah, Shiva's beast. And, and the thing is, is that Shiva's beast was a giraffid, but it was not like any giraffe you've ever seen. It, it was a di- completely different. Its head had gigantic bone spurs, not like the little ones that giraffes have enormous ones that were like moose antler big. Yeah. Uh, the thing was bulky by weight. It was the heaviest giraffe had ever. One of the largest ruminants has ever existed. This enormous cud chewing stretched out moose demon thing lived in the, in the Miocene. And then for like 7 million years, Right up until about 8,000 years ago, as I said. And there are depictions of it on rock paintings in the Sahara and yeah. Central West India. The people knew about it. People met it. People saw it. Um, as a result of all that, people have found, people like, you know, the bones of Civitherium might well have inspired, you know, various fossils stories. Um, may, may have inspired various myths. And that's just one of animals like this that we've seen. With our own eyes, there were animals like there was a period of time where you could live in mainland Greece and see a lion because they were living there. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's not when you play Assassin's Creed Odyssey, that's not accurate. There were no lions around at that time in Greece, but go back a thousand or more years and they were there. It's and, so, sort of like the uh, the idea we, we got asked a question uh, maybe a month, two months ago about why uh, lions show up in the heraldry of uh, a lot of European uh, or in particular, like the UK, the, the United Kingdom's mm-hmm. um, iconography. Also, oh God, let's, let's all take a moment to appreciate Joe actually pulling back in that weird question about lions in world of Warcraft for this podcast. I <laughs> seriously, dude, I salute you. That was, that's a deep cut. <laughs> That's a deep us cut. He just deep cut it us. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, but it's exactly the case. Uh, it, it, it's a combination of hearing stories about lions from people who live around them currently, finding lion bones in various caves and so forth. And, you know, 
then telling yourself stories about them. If you go back and look at the art that's drawn of, of lions in medieval manuscripts, those are not good lions. That, that thing does not look like a lion. No. What, what happened to that? And when they took an actual dead lion to a medieval taxidermist, the thing he did to its face should not have been done to its face. Like he didn't know what he was doing. And of course he didn't. He'd never seen one before. So there's a lot to, there's a lot of this kind of stuff happening. In the case of dragons, I absolutely think it is the combination of the fact that they embody our primal fears mm-hmm. and then therefore are useful to both teach us to not do things and to teach us to attempt to do things that, that are dangerous and frightening. The fact that they are, they've changed over time to embody new threats and new dangers, uh, th- they're almost a watchword for, you know, what's, what's the, the, that dragon cancer game that came out? Oh, I, I know you're talking about, but I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's actually called that dragon cancer. Uh, and, and it is basically using the the, the dragon as a metaphor for that. Dragons are incredibly useful metaphors. You can even like, one of my favorite stories about dragons is the story of Merlin telling Vortigern what his dream meant. If you, if you've read, uh, the, um, the history of Regnum Britannia, uh, the history of the Kings of Britain, there's this whole bit where Vortigern's like, okay, Merlin, uh, I'm not going to have you killed to, to use your your virgin-born blood to seal the stones of my castle because you know clearly you've you are in fact not born from a virgin and also because you've proved that my advisors were all you know pl- you know plotting. So yeah, I'm not going to have you killed. But I had this dream and I'd really like you to explain it to me. And Morland's like, well, I am the most bomb sorcerer ever, so sure, go ahead, tell me your dream. And Vortigern tells him about how he was trying to get the wall on his castle built and he couldn't get it built. And finally, one of his people went out with a, with a pick and just dug into the ground and this big gush of water fountained out. And inside, when the water had all cleared, they found these two eggs. And then the eggs hatched and a white dragon and a red dragon came out and began fighting. And Merlin's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, you know, all those, those, you know, Saxons you let live in, in the East. Yeah. They're not going away and they're going to be fighting us for a long time. We're, we're the red dragon of Wales. They're the white dragon of, of the North. Yeah. Thanks for that, by the way. And that's, he used dragons because it was useful. Like mm-hmm. when, 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 when Jeffrey of Monmouth was writing this thing, cause, cause let's be honest, none of that happened. You know, Vortigern probably didn't even exist. Merlin almost certainly didn't exist. Stop looking at me. Um, just, but when when that story is told, that story is told from the perspective of a guy who is Welsh, mm-hmm. who's who's serving a king who is descended from those Germans and from the Vikings that then came in and conquered them. You know, the Normans, who are basically Viking descendants who lived in France for a while in Normandy and then came over and conquered England. So. His everybody he worked for, everybody who paid his bills, everybody who did those people were all Germanic. They were the white dragon. So he had to get this past them, and he used dragons to do it. And that's another reason why dragons are so important to us because they they do that. They are they are like a a missile casing for these mythological ideas. You can you can slip them right into a story. You want to talk about hopelessness, despair, and dealing with catastrophe, but you don't want to bore the crap out of people. Dragons. There is a reason that the leaders of the corporate entities and Shadowrun are dragons. Just going to throw yeah. that out there. But I think and that's. It's, also, it's a really good game. <laughs> but I think there's going to. Gonna... No, no, we're not done. Oh, One more thing. okay. Since you brought up Shadowrun, to this day, uh, uh, is it Dolkarzian? Dolkarzian. Yeah. He is my favorite dragon in fiction. 
because of just everything he does that he does knowing it's going to kill him. And even he has more stuff set up to happen after he's dead for generations Yeah, for generations. It's just, I love that guy. Cause that is perfect. The perfect fictional dragon. It's like Xanatos and Dr. Doom had a baby and it's a dragon. So yeah, I had to say that. How could we do the end? <laughs> Well, friends, that's going to do it for today. Uh, thank you very much, Razor Bug. I see, I did it right this time uh, for sending in that question and sending us on thank an hour long spiral. <laughs> for sending us on the spiral. But just a reminder for all of you folks out there, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to your generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. If you have questions for our podcasts, or if you want to try to send something that's going to send us on a wild tangent, uh, feel free to send those into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, and you can also go ahead and throw those into our Discord channels. We have one for our Patreon supporters, uh, the Patreon Q and Podcast Questions channel. And if you can't support us on Patreon, we understand. Uh, but you can also send those questions in to our Q and podcast questions channel friends. I do want to thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Forgive me, my friend. Never. Hi, I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter. It's innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.